This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome to the Opinion Podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley, editor of The Times Red Box website. On this week's panel, we've got columnist Rachel Sylvester on the rise of Russia, political reporter Callum Jones on Labour's obsession with Twitter, and columnist Matthew Paris on why an Oxford college might be right to tear down a statue of Cecil Rhodes. The judicial inquiry into the murder of the former KGB agent Alexander Litvinenko is being published this week, and it's expected to find that the Russian government was involved. Ken Livingstone told Alice Thompson and me when we interviewed him last week that Vladimir Putin is much misunderstood, so Jeremy Corbyn will face questions about where his loyalties lie. Last year, some Labour activists suggested that social media could win them the general election. Well, they lost. But rather than learning the lesson, some seem more active and angry than ever. They should step out of the political Twitter sphere and into the world where most voters reside. There are votes to be won. The case for removing the statue of Cecil John Rhodes from an Oxford college is stronger than establishment opinion has allowed. On balance, I would leave him on his plinth, but the argument that the past is the past, we can't rewrite, history we should never try to erase or debase, what a later generation may regret, is far too strong. We cheered the toppling of that statue of Saddam in Baghdad, didn't we? Where are the Tory petitions to save the statues of Lenin that are now under threat all across the former Soviet bloc? So, Rachel, in my introduction, I said that you wanted to talk about the rise of Russia, but it's more specifically the rise of Russia within the Labour Party, within Labour politics. Yes. What made me think about this uh, for the column that I did this week was when we interviewed Ken Livingstone, it was a quickfire question we did, Barack Obama or Vladimir Putin? And he chose Putin on the grounds that he's a more effective leader. And throughout the interview, he, he seemed almost infatuated with Russia. He was talking about Putin only ever responding to acts of aggression from others. And it made me think there is, I think, still a, almost sort of lingering loyalty on the hard left for the former Soviet Union Um, and there's this sense of you know during the Cold War that was the sort of champion of left-wing values and against the sort of evil capitalist West and I think when it comes to Labour's foreign policy a lot of that kind of instinctive attitude underlying everything still still is still there Um, and I think there are really 
profound questions for Jeremy Corbyn. In the end, it's about sort of whose side are you on? Um, and the danger for him is that it looks like he's on the wrong side of history and the wrong side of public opinion. I was talking to one Labour MP who said, you know, oh, we've all been watching Deutschland 83, that Channel 4 thing about Germany before the Berlin Wall. And he said, most of us think, oh, you know, us moderates think, oh, that was all terrible. But the Corbynistas sort of love it. They're sort of almost nostalgia um, for this era um, before the Berlin Wall fell. And I, and I just think there's, there's a sort of... They're going to, it's going to be really fascinating to see how Jeremy Corbyn responds to this Litvinenko inquiry. And one of the interesting things, it's not just sort of Corbyn and Ken Clark, but quite a lot of people around them, Seamus Milne from The Guardian, has written an awful lot in defence of Russia and appeared even at events uh, on behalf of the Russian government. And yes. so it seems to be sort of collective groupthink at the top of the Labour Party in yeah. a way that we haven't seen for a long time. Yeah, there's a kind of... Um, it's a sort of underlying assumption on, on um, that wing of the party. Seamus Milne has written some really extraordinary things in his columns in The Guardian over the years. There was one, I, I looked some of them up. He, he said in one piece, for all its brutalities and failures. Communism in the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe and elsewhere delivered rapid industrialization, mass education, job security, huge advances in social and gender equality. It encompassed genuine idealism, provided a powerful counterweight to Western global domination. I mean, it's fascinating that somebody could, could write that, really, and he's now really f- helping run the Labour Party. But the Soviet Union is a very different thing from Russia. Uh, Russia is not a left-wing country. I mean, it's the politics of of larceny, really, rather than left-wing or right-wing. And I I wonder whether it isn't so much that in the minds of the old British left, Russia still equals Marxism. It's that they have an innate respect for authoritarian government. And uh, as long as it's not the authoritarian government of a right-wing dictator, they, they just quite like and admire somebody that pushes everyone else around. I think it's more complicated. I think it's actually respect for anything, anyone who's anti-Western and anti-American. So, you know, whether it's Cuba, Venezuela, it's the kind of people who are standing up to the Western establishment, if you like. So it's almost... But the problem is, for most voters, they feel the West is our side. So, (laughs) you know, if you're kind of on the other side of that, I think that puts Labour in an incredibly difficult position. What, what do you make of that, Callum? And the, and the idea, I mean, particularly uh, with the Litvinenko uh, report coming out, that this puts the spotlight on what up until now might have seemed like the more obscure views of the people in in the Labour Party. I mean, yeah, it's definitely safe to say that some views of the Labour leadership are outside of the mainstream. I mean, the truth is that even 12 months ago, let's face it, they had no idea they'd be in the position they are right now. They had no idea they'd have this forensic spotlight which questioned many of their views which 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 they now find on them. I mean, even yesterday during the debate on Donald Trump, it's a completely different area, but a DUP MP questioned Corbyn and McDonald's links with the IRA and what they've previously said 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 about that and the, and the terrorism during the, the troubles. So I think uh, we'll see a lot more of this. We'll see a lot more in, over the coming months of Corbyn, McDonald and Milne and various other figures and their views being questioned. You could see it even in the interview Jeremy Corbyn did in, with Andrew Marr when he talked about the Falklands. Again, that was a sort of anti-imperialism, anti-Western knee-jerk reaction. So, you know, bring, you know raise that whole question again. Um, the Stop the War Coalition even put out a statement when North Korea tested their nuclear weapons, saying blaming the Americans for sort of provocative <laughs> behaviour. And it, it's um, it's fascinating. It's basically driven by anti-West and 
Putin is seen as the sort of figurehead of that at the moment. And then combined with a sort of rather romantic, lingering affection for Russia of, of communist days. I, I think the mistake that we moderates, as we might call ourselves, or the Labour moderates anyway, make is, is to keep saying, don't these people realise that their views are very unpopular in Britain? They don't care. Mm. They really don't care. Ken Livingstone has never cared that his views were unpopular, and it hasn't done him any harm. He made quite an effective mayor of London. I think a, a, real, a real socialist has such a belief in the objective truth which they follow that they feel that history must in the end vindicate them and people must in the end come to their own point of view and they don't care if people are taking a little while doing that. But I don't think it is electable, is it? When it comes to no. trust on national security, Corbyn's ratings are appalling. Yeah. Fewer than, a, you know, less than a fifth of the voters would trust him to keep them and their families safe. That's the sort of most profound thing on which people vote. Well, we'll, co we'll come on more to Labour's catalogue of reasons why they, they might struggle to uh, get elected. But just on, on the issue of Russia and Britain's relationship with Russia, because you talked about in your column, Rachel, about how David Cameron's going to have a meeting in the National Security Council, talking about how to apply to the Litvinenko report. And our relationship with Russia seems to be up and down all the time. It's gone from uh, Moscow dismissing us as a tiny island, which got David Cameron all stirred up about how, how mild we were, really. And then there was the Malaysian flight that was shot down, and uh, there's the Ukraine. And so, actually, frankly what's happening in the Labour Party is slightly irrelevant is the relationship between David Cameron and Vladimir Putin which is which is more pertinent where, where are we on the current up and down do you think well I think they're trying to hose down the idea that this is going to cause a huge diplomatic crisis there's the the talk in number 10 when I spoke to people this week was you know this isn't going to be the sort of cause of a great big new rift and extra sanctions etc etc and there's a sort of sneaking suspicion uh, sort of admiration that David Cameron has for that sort of strong leader thing you know he remembers going around in the 4x4 being driven by Putin just the two of them and the sort of 2.30am phone call for a meeting with Vladimir you know in the over oh, goodness knows what they were drinking but, <laughs> um, but at the same time they're becoming more and more suspicious I think um, so although there's there definitely I think there won't be a sort of huge new diplomatic rift there's a sort of underlying suspicion for, for the Kremlin and they're they're trying to make sure you know keep keep keeping them at arm's length without causing a huge major row. So Callum let's let's come on then to the to the Labour Party and their um, woes. Uh, your it's an interesting idea that you've put forward that actually they they spend too much time on social media and actually they need to get out and uh, talk to some real people. Yeah I mean to be fair I think all parties are in part at fault here uh, but Labour has a huge mountain to climb in less than four months time now and its supporters in in my view I would say are best placed on the doorstep and not behind their computers. Now I think a lot of people have been getting angry not all of them and I think it's it's safe to say it's just a minority that are giving the best around a bad name but I think this sort of unhealthy culture has, has now developed where Twitter for some people is seen to be at the heart of activism and I think uh, that could cost them unless they unless they readjust their, their, their views uh, in the ballot box in May. I wonder if there's been any research done in, in, into the link or lack of link between social media activism and actually getting out and, and doing things. Do, do people who who, who tweet a lot and energetically on the social media put across a point of view, can you get them to do anything else beyond that or is there actually a, a kind of disconnect between the two? So it's, a, it's a good question. I think a, a, lot of the, a lot of the ways people put across their views on social media probably wouldn't 
go down brilliantly on the doorstep because people can be quite quite furious with their views. Really, if you're if you're representing a party, if you're trying to if you're trying to win a debate or win an argument, uh, I I don't see many people doing that on social media. What I see is them furiously putting across Mm. their point of view and dismissing their opponents. But I really I, I I think Labour has some work to do before May. There's also the echo chamber problem, isn't there, on Twitter, that people are speaking to other people who agree with them. They're getting louder and louder and louder and more and more and more furious. And actually, the job of a political party is to go beyond the echo chamber and try and persuade people who don't agree with them. And it's kind of reinforcing these views. In a way, it's sort of reinforcing the group think. It's kind of symptomatic of the wider problem in the Labour Party. The, the, the danger is that they, uh, a Jeremy Corbyn tweet gets retweeted hundreds and thousands of times and they think, oh, that's gone down well. Exactly. Let's do more of that. But it hasn't gone down well in Nuneaton or Stevenage or wherever it is that they need to win over swing voters. On the other hand, Labour Party alone amongst British political parties and almost alone in recent history is increasing its membership. And I I guess the argument within the Labour Party would be, okay. a lot of this social media stuff is, 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 is just fluff. But we are bringing people in in that way. We're getting people interested in, in that way. And in a way, the, the results do seem to suggest it. Depends who's joining and who's leaving. So yes. a lot of MPs say their moderate members are leaving and more kind of Corbynista people are joining. And, and the problem for the Corbynistas is they're slightly in denial if they think that they've got this huge mandate when actually I think it's 0.5% of the electorate voted in the Labour leadership well, that, election. Well, that's the problem. There might be 200,000 yeah. people who agree with Jeremy Corbyn, but they just but they've they've all joined the, the Labour Party. Million, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a much bigger constituency there. I also, I also just something to say about social media as a whole as well. I don't think Twitter is is, is the only website which is which is part of this. Of course, Facebook also has a, has a big role in every every party's social media strategy. But I think a lot of activists they they scroll through their they scroll through their Facebook feed. And they might be quite quite encouraged by the fact that all of their friends might be sharing a post by Jeremy Corbyn, like you said, or sharing a post by John McDonnell, or sharing a post by by Momentum or or, or, a, or a Labour branch. But just because their friends are doing that doesn't mean that's all they're reading. Doesn't mean that's that's the heart and soul of the nation. Doesn't mean that's what the nation thinks. And I think um, by reading through a Facebook newsfeed, you can be quite misled as to what is popular opinion and what most people are thinking. Yeah, for for years in the. Conservative Party in our local associations in the days when we were more vigorous, one had to keep telling Tory activist friends that just because we all think that and just because all the dinner parties... Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss this episode of politics without the boring bits is brought to you by luton rising owners of london luton airport the uk's most socially impactful airport find out more at lutonrising.org.uk you've been to people (laughs) think that you really mustn't think that's necessarily going to sweep the country Mm. as an opinion so 
in a way, it's an old-fashioned problem on a more modern, mm. uh, in a more modern setting. Very, very true. And I think, um, I think in America, obviously, particularly when you look at the broadcasters, uh, they, they they can afford to. They, they don't have to be scrupulously impartial. So if you're if you're on the right, you might watch Fox News, or if you're if you're on the left, there are other options for you, for you to watch as well. And obviously, in in the UK, there there are much more there are much stricter regulations. So uh, a broadcaster is is bound by by rules of impartiality to try and be as balanced as possible but so I think social media is now presenting this new choice for people they, they, they create what they read they create what they're following and uh, I think like Rachel said that can create some something of an, epi- an, an echo chamber really there's also something I think about the way the the Tory party fought the last general election in terms of the uh, systems they used to get in touch with voters a lot of it was quite old school it was very targeted leafleting and I remember speaking to ministers before the election they were saying they were given lists of which doors to knock on and there were one or two doors to knock on in a street because those were the two people that they had to get their message across to but actually the idea of going and knocking on somebody's door and who you w- have identified as a swing voter is quite an old-fashioned way mm-hmm. of going about campaigning whereas Labour had this we're going to have four million conversations with people which I think it was Stella Creasy said it's no good if the wrong conversation it's no good if three and a half million or to just sod off which was um, <laughs> which was a big problem they had but but the, the the idea that you can win or lose an election on Twitter or Facebook seems seems the birth of the time being they seem to be wanting also uh, they were doing leafleting but wasn't wasn't there also a sort of more targeted online campaign so using Facebook to target key messages equivalent of a leaflet going through the door but aimed at very particular voters using social media but but with really old-fashioned political campaign tools that's rather different to this kind of Mm. tweets twitter sphere echo chamber thing i i don't think that we're at a point that an election can be won or lost on twitter or facebook however it can be used in a very effective way and i think like like you were saying rachel i think the tories did use uh facebook and advertising on facebook in a very effective way and i think labor actually used it uh in in a similar fashion they just uh, that, that's very different, like you say, from posting and getting various likes and retweets from, from friends and followers. What my Tory friends uh, campaigning in Derbyshire found at the last election, they came under a lot of pressure too from Conservative Central Office to get onto Facebook to make sure they spent an hour or two every day uh, making sure the message was getting across there. They found a, a very great difficulty in establishing a, a, a Facebook community that was within the constituency that they were fighting. Right. Easy to get into a wider national community, but in a constituency, it's the constituency you're fighting. It's your candidate's name that you're trying to put forward, and it's your local problems that you're trying to raise, and it's really hard to do that on national or international mm. Facebook. Mm. The thing that I find shocking when you look at Twitter, I'm a bit of a lurker, I just sort of watch people <laughs> rather than tweeting very much, but it's the kind of shrillness of some of the debate, and especially on the left at the moment, it may just be to do with the people I watch or follow or whatever, but there seems, rather as there was in the run-up to the Scottish referendum with the Cybernats, there's now a kind of Corbyn, cyber Corbynistas or whatever, who are really quite aggressive and sending really quite nasty messages, including to MPs. And there's a misogynistic streak to it as well, some really vile messages going to women, Labour moderates, which you just have to think, you know, this this would not be tolerated if it was 
in physical form. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And as Callum was saying, the idea that this, the, some of the messages they use would work well if you went and shouted into somebody's letterbox. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yes. yeah. you know, probably wouldn't go down that way. I mean, I, when I've even... Pa- in, pictures actually, of women, female Labour MPs in their underwear through somebody's letterbox. Exactly, that's probably not going to win over people. And I think, no. you, you know, as a journalist, I've, I find this all the time, you get aggressive messages posted on Twitter. And that I had one last week and it was, I, can't, I, can't, I, th- I think it might have involved swearing, so I won't, won't repeat what it said. <laughs> and I looked at their profile and it said something like religion, happiness. You know, I, it, it was all sort of all very lovey-dovey and pictures of cats and fields of flowers. And, and yet th- something seems to take people over on, on mm. Twitter. Where they sort of, you're absolutely right, they, they feel they can say things which they, they would never in a million years think of saying to somebody to their face. Mm. Right, well, on that note, uh, Matthew, let's, let's, let's turn the clock a bit, a bit further back. Let's talk about this uh, statue of Cecil Rhodes at Oxford University and whether or not it should be taken down. Well, I think the, uh, the argument that you can't rewrite history, therefore whatever we now think of somebody, if there's a statue of them, it should stay there, is, is way too strong as an argument. Uh, m- much of my family live in, in Spain, all over Spain. Uh, they are renaming squares that were named after General Franco or El Cadillo or whatever, uh, renaming them because Franco is now out of favour. Statues of Franco everywhere have disappeared. I, myself, I'd leave the streets and the squares named as they are and I'd leave the statues. But I can understand how millions of Spaniards don't actually want reminders of Franco all over the place. And I can understand how some undergraduates at uh, Oxford colleges might not want reminders of a a jingoistic imperialist land grabber which Cecil Rhodes was. Now I admire uh, Cecil John Rhodes. I think British imperialism was good for Africa on balance. I don't think he was more of a racist than anybody else of his time. So I can stick up for the statue of Rhodes because I admire him but if I didn't admire him, if I hated him, I, I could see the argument for not wanting his statue in my college. But what about the idea that the statue's been there for a lot longer than any of the undergraduates will ever be, and that it's not it's not like redecorating the common room uh, because you don't like the the, the carpet while, during your time there? It's a fair point, but um, <laughs> fashions change, and uh, and I'm afraid we do rename streets and squares and and put up and take down monuments without much eye to whether a future generation is going to agree with us. But I, this is nothing new. I remember when I was at Margaret Thatcher's mm. old college at Oxford and when there was a huge debate about the statue of... There was a bust of Margaret Thatcher and they ended up putting it behind bulletproof glass <laughs> when we were there because <laughs> there was such a sort of anger about it among the undergraduates. But the problem with this Rhodes argument is a lot of the people who are complaining seem to be Rhodes scholars. So I think that's sort of level of hypocrisy that if they're taking money which comes from Cecil Rhodes' endowment, it does seem a bit rich to then say, oh, but we mustn't have any reminder whatsoever of him. Um, I suppose and I think so. But, you know, if you, you've got a big donation from the Cadbury Foundation, does that mean you, you, you shouldn't campaign against people eating too much chocolate? I, I think it's... Probably. Well. <laughs> 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 There's a sort of element of cultural revolution about the thing, a sort of year zero, and... You know, history should be able to stand, you know, and you don't have to agree with everything or endorse everything that happened, but Hmm. that doesn't mean you can't acknowledge it existed. 
Uh, uh, Callum, I think you and I are both in the same boat on this, having, neither of us having been to university. Yes. So we, <laughs> so we both missed out on the opportunity to go around constantly <laughs> wanting to ban everything yeah. and uh, tear things down. <laughs> I think the Cecil, the, the Cecil Rhodes argument, uh, there was a very interesting debate on this very podcast about it last week, and I think the, the, the main debate seems to be about free speech. It's whether you silence these views or whether you challenge these views, and it's fresh in my mind because when we were recording this, I, I watched the Donald Trump debate in Parliament yesterday, but during it, most MPs were united in condemning his remarks, and yet a lot of them were questioning the logic of banning him. I mean, Paul Flynn suggested that actually banning him from the country, which I suppose in, in, in this situation is the equivalent of tearing down a statue, would make him some form of a martyr. And I just think that's quite quite an interesting point. If, if anything, it would uh, it would spur on some of his supporters, which, uh, which is an interesting point. Hmm. I also wonder to what extent the efforts of these students would be better employed tackling today's Injustices and problem. It just seems a sort of strange cause to to take. Well, up. people study history at university. Well, that's, that, 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 that is true. But then, they, but then maybe they you know study history and learn lessons from it rather than uh, tearing things down. I suppose so. Yeah, I've listened to some of them interviewed, and I, I was being a kind of curmudgeonly old Tory that I am prepared to listen to some kind of stupid undergraduate who hadn't really thought their <laughs> argument through, and and should be disregarded. And and actually. I, I have found the case that they have made, though it doesn't persuade me, I can, I can see its argument. They're highly intelligent people, some of these students. I, I don't know well, if... I'd like to say they're all highly intelligent people yeah. uh, yeah, Oxford. Cecil John Rhodes I might, might be proud to think that the money that he had endowed was, uh, was sparking this level of, of debate. He ought to be. That's true. I think the level of debate is a good, I think, good thing. The problem is I think there's a growing culture in universities of banning things, banning yes, people. I agree. This whole concept of safe spaces, the people who wanted to ban Jermaine Greer from speaking because she had a particular view about transgender people mm. and actually the point of university should be about meeting people who disagree with you and having those arguments and having those debates so I agree with you it's completely it's good that people have the debate but that doesn't mean necessarily that statues should be turned out, t- torn down or that speakers should be banned mm. I can't dispute that but we are having the debate and actually as someone I was um, brought up in what was then Rhodesia uh, and much Rhodesian history Zimbabwean now history is is forgotten Rhodes, in, actually, in Southern Africa, is, is very r- little talked about. It's quite a good thing that we're raising these issues and thinking about his, his legacy. And I'm ready to go into battle to defend Rhodes's legacy. So I'm, in a sense, quite pleased that someone has brought the question up. Well, that's, that's probably one thing we can um, uh, mm. take from the debate. I was struck, actually, YouGov had done some polling. Well, apart from a moment, the pollsters' issues about how accurate all their polling are. But I was, I was struck that there's a, only 11% of the people who responded to this poll said that the statute should be taken down, and 59% said it shouldn't. That's so just because they hate students. 20, well, that is not... <laughs> It's quite possible. But interestingly, and this is the point that you were making before, was 44% said that we should be proud of British colonialism mm. and it, on the whole it did it did more more good than harm. Mm. Yeah, that, well, that doesn't... I'm surprised it's as low as 44%. Those are the ones that, that admit to that point of view. It's probably about 80%. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> but actually, all these three subjects that we discussed, it was kind of tied together, don't they? They're about people having views, you know, do you ha- how much should free speech and difference of opinion be allowed uh, and there's a sort of lack of tolerance in the Labour Party on the Twitter sphere that's mm. reflected in this debate on roads as well and I suppose there's also a, a sort of broader point about democracy and whether or not you know if only 
eleven percent think the thing should be taken down. Well, they're, they're the noisiest. Or on Twitter, two hundred thousand people do agree with Jeremy Corbyn, but they're all being very loud on social media. And the impact that has on other people who might take a different view about the mm. quality of Labour policy or the quality of you know or the the, the merits of British imperialism—that's a, a a wider point about the majority being cowed into not saying anything. Mm. Beautiful quote from um, from Burke, who said, "Just because half a dozen." Crickets make the field ring with their importunate clink. Do not suppose that they are the only inhabitants of the field. Across the field, large numbers of cattle, I think he, he said, graze quietly, keeping their opinions to themselves. And that's, uh, well, we're hearing the importunate clink of the crickets at the moment. Well, very good. I think, I, think, I think we should always end on some poetry. So uh, <laughs> uh, thank you very much for that. And as ever, you can find out more about all of the issues we've been talking about at thetimes.co.uk. You can subscribe to this Times podcast uh, via iTunes, which means you can get delivered to your device every week. And if you want political news, analysis and gossip landing in your inbox every morning, sign up to for free to my Redbox email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox forward slash sign up. For now, from Rachel, Callum, Matthew and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.